Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray for us uh, before we read Scripture together. Father, we just sang together and asked that you would give, give our jaded senses light. And uh, so that's what we pray now, uh, that that would be the case. That you would meet all of us uh, through this word that we're going to read and, and hear together and talk about and think about and meditate on together. That you would use it to meet us where we find ourselves this morning, to show us the grace of Jesus and to change us by it. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like uh, Pastor Dan mentioned, for this season of Lent, we are going to read together uh, from the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to look at things that happened during those, those last days between his uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his uh, last supper with the disciples in the upper room. During those days, Jesus becomes uh, increasingly apparent. Um, his intentions become increasingly apparent. What he wants to do becomes increasingly apparent. And all of that is met with uh, increasing resistance. So uh, I'm guessing that all of you are well aware uh, that we have this little municipal election coming up on Tuesday. So I thought that we would start uh, this Sunday with a political question that Jesus was asked uh, during that last week. So I'm going to read from Matthew 22 for us, verses 15 through 22. Uh, you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed. Or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is God's word, and it is given for our good. Well, my, uh, my block here in the city was uh, recently redrawn into a new ward. Uh, maybe yours was too. A bunch of them were uh, in May. Every 10 years, the city council redraws the ward maps based on census data. And the ordinance says that they're supposed to be uh, compact and contiguous. Um, but if you have ever looked at a ward map, you know that many of them are comically not. And there is uh, zero surprise as to why that has occurred that way. They have been drawn um, by the folks who have the most power and who would hold, like to hold on to that power. Um, my new ward, though, is a little bit different in that the incumbent uh, alderman is stepping down. And so there are uh, four folks running for that soon-to-be-vacated office. And I went to uh, a forum recently that was held by a couple of neighborhood groups to hear from all four of these candidates. And as these forums go, the thing was pretty good. First of all, it was very civil. Uh, and second, 
the questions were good enough and they were given enough time to answer those questions that all, uh, all four of them appeared to have to stray away from their scripted stuff and actually answer real things on the spot with stuff they thought up in that moment. Um, and then there was this lightning round and the host, uh, Ben Javorsky, who some of you may know, he writes uh, politics for the reader, writes about politics for the reader, has a podcast. Ben Javorsky said that during the lightning round, they're all going to have to answer what he asks them right away in just a couple seconds. No time to think about it, just to answer the questions. And they did pretty good with the lightning round um, until he dropped this one. If you couldn't vote for yourself and you had to vote for one of the other candidates up there beside you, who would it be? <laughs> and uh, immediately, <laughs> almost all of their faces twisted into this visceral, observable pain. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome, and the crowd laughed. And then we shut up real quick so that we could hear their answers, which turned out to be awkward, uh, contorted, painful, ridiculous non-answers which is nuts if you think about it, three of the four of them could not bring themselves to say the name of one of the other candidates. For fear of what I do not know, they had walked uh, right into Javorsky's trap. They had fallen for one of the oldest political trick questions in the book, except for one of them, the youngest of them, the least experienced of them, the one who didn't quite seem uh, as prepared and quite as ready for prime time as the rest of them, he had the last word. And he just pointed to the guy next to him and said, oh, I'd vote for this guy. It seemed like the truest thing that had been said all night. And that is the kind of loaded setup that is swirling uh, all around Jesus there when these guys who have plotted together stroll up to him and, and butter him up and then drop their political trick question on him. The whole intent of the exercise was to entangle him in his words, as Matthew puts it, but Jesus' answer is so devastatingly simple and true. It is so clear and so exposing that all that anyone could do was marvel when he finished. And I hope that maybe, uh, I hope that maybe we can do that too as we think about it for a few minutes. And I think what that might mean is that starting with the preacher, we might have to hear it fresh. And we might, if the shoe fits, have to allow it to kind of expose us like it exposed those guys that day. So this is the, this is the final week before the crucifixion. You have to remember that uh, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem a few days earlier. He had just entered Jerusalem as a king uh, to shouts of Hosanna, to songs of adoration that were sung by all of the kids. You know, palm branches, cloaks spread on the ground, save a son of David, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And then he strolled into the temple and he flipped the tables of the money changers. He, sold, he, he pushed out and sent out everyone who was selling and who was buying. And none of, this, none of this had caught Jesus off guard. None of it had surprised him. Uh, he wasn't caught up in this moment. He wasn't swept up into this moment. He wasn't a reluctant participant in it. He had orchestrated it. This is what he wanted. He wanted for everyone with eyes to see and everyone with ears to hear to know that he could act like he owned the place and nobody was going to stop him. And that was that. And the people... The people are all in for it. They're all in for it right now. 
But there is another group of people in the holy city that goes into red alert when Jesus does this. For lack of a better way of putting it, that group uh, that goes into red alert is the uh, establishment. (laughs) It's everyone who held power or everyone who was adjacent to those who held power. They simply could not have Jesus doing this because they were all, all of them really were under Roman occupation. So what little power any of these guys had was scarce. And so it was uh, worth fighting for, even if it meant that they were going to get a little bit of blood on their hands, which is precisely what Matthew says they were willing to do. The Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And I know that doesn't sound bad, but you have to remember that the last time the Pharisees plotted together about Jesus, which Matthew had told us about back in chapter 12, it was to conspire how to destroy him. So the Pharisees are this uh, nationalist pressure group, enormously influential, and they believed, among other things, that Israel's occupation by Rome was a direct result of the nation not being holy or uh, pure enough, which is why it makes it so eyebrow-raising that they had teamed up with the Herodians for this particular escapade. The Herodians were loyal to Rome's puppet king, Herod. Any power that the Herodians held, they held at Rome's pleasure. So it was super weird for them to work with the Pharisees. They had no use, the Pharisees had no use for Rome at all. But church, Jesus was just that much of a threat to them. He looked like he could upset the whole apple cart. And these guys would find themselves locked out. And it's, it's really important to see how all of this matters. It's really important for people like us to see how all of this works, how all of these human powers interact with one another and engage with Jesus. But church, we cannot forget for a minute that there is another power that holds sway behind the scenes, the power that stands behind the power. And in a way, when Jesus is interacting with these guys, he is also looking just over their heads at the real threat. As St. Paul would say years later, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's what Jesus has in mind during that final week. And here is his intent in that final week. He is going to do those powers in for you and for me. He is going to crush them for us. So this, uh, this strange team-up comes to Jesus and unleashes this uh, sycophantic torrent of words to begin with. Teacher, we know you're true. We know you teach the way of God truthfully, that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. I mean, those words on their lips, they drip with uh, insincerity. It's like Eddie Haskell walked into the room, if you know who that is. But I can't let this pass. You have to know all of it's true. Everything that they say about him is absolutely true. Everything they say is true. Not with the condescending, flattering tone with which they mean it, but in the best way that any of these things could ever be true about anyone. 
You can read the Gospels from front to back and you'll see that it's true. You never see Jesus succumb to manipulation. But more importantly than that, you never ever see Jesus manipulating anyone for anything. Jesus doesn't need anyone to prop up his sense of self, a sense of what it is that he is here to do in this world. He doesn't need anyone to do that. But at the same time, everyone that he is ever with always stands at the very center of his gaze. It's like he is hanging on all of their words. And when he replies to them, he replies with words, he replies with actions that meet them precisely in the places of their deepest need. Yeah, Jesus doesn't worry about how he looks. He doesn't worry about how he is perceived by others, but that doesn't ever make him distant. Doesn't ever allow him to be aloof. He never holds anything over anyone's head. He is free. He is free. And this wild kind of freedom that Jesus have, has enables him to truly love. It enables him to walk with unfailing courage into the worst human messes. It allows him to walk into the worst kinds of darkness, even when it costs him everything. He is free. And of course, that is where the story of that whole week that Jesus is in is headed. And I want you to know, church, that the gifts that flow out of Jesus' cross and resurrection and ascension are many. And here's one of them. One of them is that he gives us his spirit, who is working in us to slowly change us into people who learn to live and to love out of the kind of freedom that Jesus had. He is changing us to look like him. Spirit, please make us free like that. So they've uh, they buttered him up, and now they ask their trick question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> What they're talking about is the, the poll tax, or the, sometimes it's called the head tax. Rome forced it on the Judean province when Jesus was, was still a boy. Every adult had to pay this tax. It was about a day's wage for the average person. And of course, it was this regular reminder to everyone who paid it that their land and their autonomy had ta been taken over by this debased empire that was ruled by this guy who pretended he was a god. You know, nobody liked it. <laughs> and when, when it was first instituted, a Galilean named Judas led a revolt against it. Um, Judas' position was that paying this tax, if you pay this tax to Caesar, it was like setting him up in place of God. Well, Rome crushed Judas and his revolt. And they left dead and dying revolutionaries hanging on crosses all over the country when they left. And most people got the message, but it did not make that revolt any less popular with the people. And so now, about 25 years later, you can see what this question was meant to do, <laughs> what it was meant to do to Jesus. It was meant to get Jesus coming and going, saying yes or saying no. It was meant to catch him between Roman spears on the one hand and the loss of popular support on the other. They weren't really interested in Jesus somehow being able to untie the knot of their question. What they wanted was for him to look bad, to alienate him from the people. 
which is one of the reasons why when Jesus calls them out, he begins by calling them hypocrites. <laughs> they are pretending to want to know what he thinks for their own gain. That's uh, hypocrite 101. But the other reason that they're hypocrites surfaces in short order when Jesus asks one of them um, to show him the coin for the tax. Now, most, uh, most pious folks would never... Uh, would never carry that coin around at all. First of all, they didn't like things with images on them. Second of all, that particular coin, the Roman denarii, was very troublesome because along with the picture of the emperor came this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. <laughs> and the flip side had a picture of his mom who was styled to look like the god Roma with the inscription, High Priest. So if you were going to offend Jewish sensibilities, if that was what you wanted to do, you could hardly calculate a more effective means than that coin. And Jesus um, doesn't have one on him. What do you know? But you know who does? One of those goofs who came to mess with Jesus. And without thinking too much about it, I'm sure he popped it out of his pocket or his money bag or whatever, and he held it up. Well, look at you, big guy, <laughs> just carrying one of those things around on a Tuesday. It was a shrewd move, beautiful move by Jesus. Hypocrites indeed. And I think that might have been enough to de-escalate the situation. I think in that moment, Jesus could have kindly just smiled and walked off and the people would have been with him. They would have known what he was getting at. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he asks them, whose inscription, whose likeness is on this coin? And they say to him, the obvious, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Jesus answers their question. And he also answers the question that he was not asked. First, you, you can give Caesar back his coins. As Matthew tells the story, Jesus uses a very different one than the questioners had. They had asked, is it okay to pay Caesar? Jesus answers by saying it's okay to give it back, to render it back to the proper owner. And when Jesus says this, he is implying that the state has legitimate things to do, like rewarding good or punishing evil, like we heard about in the New Testament lesson. The state has legitimate things to do like building roads or providing pr protection or providing care for people. And human states, when they're running well, are good instruments for human beings. Now, they most certainly go off the rails. If you want to see a, a government or a state that goes off the rails, read the book of Revelation. <laughs> or for a lesser example, look at the ward map. But the norm is that the state is needful to keep things running. And sometimes, sometimes to allow things to flourish. So we should care for it and we should do things like vote and pray for the people who are in it and honor the people who are in it and be involved directly in it if we can, if we have that ability, we should do that. Caesar can have his coin back. But as soon as Jesus says that, he limits it. 
As soon as he said it, as soon as it's out of his mouth, he limits it and render to God the things that are God's. There is no coin, of course, that represents that because there is no coin that could ever, uh, uh, ever express or ever contain all that rightly belongs to God. Psalm 24, the Old Testament lesson we heard, the earth is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's, the psalm writer says, and all of the fullness of the whole thing, <laughs> it's all his. Like we sang in our call to worship at the beginning of the service, everything, and it's all beautiful, and it's all good, and it's all his. And to render back to him what belongs to him is to render to him all of ourselves. So Jesus isn't isn't saying in this teaching that we live with two loyalties, and that's just the way it is. We, We live with two loyalties, one to the state and one to God. He is saying there is one loyalty only. One loyalty only, and it is properly to him. And he is the one who sets the boundary of the state, any state, all of them. And I know uh, someone will probably get mad at me for saying it, (laughs) but I sometimes wonder if we skate on the edge of forgetting that that's true. You know, sometimes uh, I hear the breathless way that our politicians talk, Or uh, I hear the breathless way that we talk about our particular brand of politics, whatever it is, left, right, center. I hear the breathless way that we talk about what we imagine that our our particular way of politics is going to accomplish. And I wonder if we ought to instead just stop for a minute and take a breath. Because identifying any one state or any politics with the cause of God, it's an idolatry. It's an idolatry that denies the lordship of King Jesus. I mean, if we're Christians, we profess that Jesus is Lord, and there are no qualifiers to it. None. No government, no state, no politics can or should ever claim to be the special friend of God. They are only his instruments, limited by him, rising, falling at his pleasure, the one at whose name every knee should bow. So sure, Caesar can have his his coin back. But remember, in the grand scheme of things, Caesar is small potatoes. I mean, Caesars have been coming and going for millennia. The bigger thing, the more needful thing, is to render to God all that is his. So they they marvel at Jesus' teaching, and they leave him alone for now. But church, there's an irony to this. There's an irony to this because in the end, Jesus will indeed suffer the same fate as the tax revolutionaries of his boyhood. In the end, he will be crucified, but not for leading a revolution against Rome. He's going to lead a very different revolt. He's going to lead a revolt against everything that made Rome possible in the first place. Against oppression and suffering and death and violence and sin, yours and mine, that seeded all of that stuff into life in the first place. The whole world is his, and we are his, and he will have us 
even if it costs him everything. So let's render to him all that is his, starting with the thanks of worship. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this this teaching from Jesus that reminds us that we also bear an image. We bear a stamp, and it is yours. And so we ask, Father, that that you would help us to be a people who are loyal first and always and only to you. And who, out of that, learn to live and to love in the kind of freedom that your son loved with. Father, we ask that you would work this in us so that we can mature, so that we can grow up in our faith, and so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.